You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis. We're at chapter 30, verse 25, page 24 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis 35, we'll look at starting at verse 25, and we'll read into chapter 31, verse 16. It's a little bit longer of a reading, but let's exercise our strength, if you're able, to stand as we read our sermon passage for today. Genesis, starting at verse chapter 30, verse 25, the word of the Lord. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know I have served you. Now your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did what and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I had served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me 
and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob! And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Amen. You may be seated. We pick up our sermon series here through Genesis and the life of Jacob. And we see that he desires to return home to his home and country uh, back there in the land of Canaan in the promised land. That's the desire he states right at the beginning of our passage. At the end of our passage, it's what he then sets out to do. And we'll see him actually do that next week. In between, though, from the start of our passage when he says he wants to, versus the end of our passage when he actually begins to head home, in between, there is another six-some years of working for Laban. And how do I know it was six years? Next passage, next week's passage will tell us that it was six years. Well, as we consider this period in Jacob's life, two things are going to be seen. One we'll see evidence of Jacob's spiritual growth. Two, we will also see evidence that he still has certain chronic struggles with his own sin. So spiritual growth and still some struggles with sin. That probably sounds familiar to you all. Because that's our life too, right? God's growing us, but yet we still have some struggles. Let's dig in then and learn what God was doing uh, there and then, and to see how He would have us to learn from that today. Well, let's begin in our first point by looking at the favor Jacob finds from Laban as he desires to return home. This is the first section, verses 25 through 34. Starts out with Joseph was born to Jacob and Rachel, verse 25. And so by this point, Jacob had served Laban for more than 14 years. And in verse 25, he requests Laban's blessing for him to now be able to leave. Remember, he had committed seven and then another seven years of labor for his two wives. And so he goes to Laban basically and says, I've, I've done my duty. I've paid my debt. I've, I've, I've put in my time. Now I'd like your blessing to go and return home. He wants to take now his rather large family. Right? Remember last passage we saw all the kids that had been born. How many has he had? 
11, right? 11 sons at least, right? Benjamin's not born until later. That's the 12th son. And at least one other daughter, but there may have been other daughters that just weren't mentioned. Um, and so, where are we at? I've lost my, my place here. So, he wants to take his large family back to the promised land where he had come from. But we see Laban does not want him to go. Jacob has found favor in Laban's sight. That's what chapter 31, verse 2 implies, looking back, that at this point, Jacob had found favor in Laban's sight. Laban comes to Jacob. He approaches Jacob really respectfully. He says, the other way now, if, if, if I've found favor in your sight, Jacob, so Laban tells that to Jacob, if I found favor in your sight, would you stay? Can we negotiate a wage so that you'll stay? See, God has been prospering Jacob's work, and since Jacob has been working for Laban, that means that Laban has been prospered, right? And so Laban wants more of that. So Laban expresses that himself in verse 27. Somehow Laban learned by divination that the Lord had blessed him because of Jacob. Uh, that's an interesting thing because divination is typically thought of a, that language is usually used of a pagan practice of telling the future through some pagan religious, false religious practices. But here it's interestingly connected somehow to the name of the Lord. And of course, we'll see next chapter or next passage that Laban has idols. And so we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, that someone like Laban would have sort of a hand in some false religion and a hand in some true religion and try to syncretize those, the temptation that still exists today. People who want to have a hand in both. But the point is that Laban foresees God's blessings upon Jacob will be good for Laban. Laban foresees that if Jacob keeps working for him because God's blessing Jacob, that it'll be good for Laban. So Laban really wants Jacob to stay. Now, Jacob, when he hears this, notice that Jacob doesn't disagree. right? He doesn't disagree with the assessment that God has blessed his labor, even to Laban's benefit. Now, verse 30, or actually verse 29, notice, Jacob boasts, how in the name of the Lord there, that the Lord has so blessed his labors to make Laban benefit. And then verse 30, Jacob says, before all of this, you only had a little Laban, but now God's blessing has been upon your flocks and it's increased abundantly. And so, uh, you know, what, what uh, Laban claims, Jacob sort of puts some meat on the bones there and makes it very clear the Lord is the one who's prospered you through my labors. And let's really just pause for a moment and appreciate Jacob's growth there in, in what he's saying. You might remember last chapter, I repeatedly compared Jacob when he arrived there at Laban's family looking for a wife. I, I repeatedly compared that back with the previous generation, when Abraham had sent his servant to that same family to go and find a wife for Isaac. And remember, I compared and contrasted the two. And I said, when Abraham's servant went there, Abraham's servant was constantly talking about God's blessings and how God prospered all of it to bring it all together, to bring that wife to Isaac from that family. 
And you might have mentioned how, I remember how I mentioned when Abraham's servant was talking like that, Laban was there too, and Laban started talking about the blessings of God, sort of spurred on by the way Abraham's servant talked about it. But remember, when I pointed to Jacob's arrival, this was now 14 years prior to this passage, right? He wasn't talking about God at all. And so therefore, Laban wasn't talking about God for all. There was a lot of the same kind of providential blessings, but Jacob was not explicit to reference and credit and glorify God. But now, 14 years later, our passage shows Jacob beginning to do that very thing. Jacob is taking on the name of the Lord And Jacob is saying, look how God has blessed me and therefore you. And even Laban in this context is also talking about the Lord. And I I think it's a reflection of God's growth in Jacob. It's not to say he doesn't have more growing to do, but I think this is a positive development. And so Jacob, even though he wanted to originally here to leave and go home, he agrees to Laban's request to negotiate a fair wage, to stay, to continue to serve Laban. Now, we can see Jacob's monetary concern. It's mentioned in verse 30. Basically, Jacob's concern is he wants to start providing for his own house. Right Up to this point, he's basically just been a, a, a sort of hired servant, an employee. He's making his, his boss rich, so to speak. And he says, I, I got this family now. I want to start making my family, uh, you know, building up my family's uh, financial well-being. And so Jacob, he responds to Laban's request to negotiate with a rather interesting proposal. Laban said, give me your wage. You know, tell me how much you want to get paid. In other words, you know, I'll pay you as a good employee. But Jacob's response, his proposal is a little bit more than that. He says, don't give me a wage. I'll put it this way. Let's enter into a partnership, sort of a profit-sharing plan. So Jacob's proposal is a little bit more on the lines of a a partnership. His payout, Jacob's payout that he proposes, would be that Jacob would get all the off-colored animals of the flock. He'd get the speckled and the spotted sheep and the goats, as well as the black lambs. And I think what we're supposed to understand here, I think it's fair to assume that what Jacob is proposing would have been the sort of smaller minority among all of the flock. You know, we'll take the sort of odd-colored ones. They taste just as good. Um, But they're the sort of the smaller amount. And so they agree in verse 34. And so our first section ends here with this sort of partnership that they agreed to. Something that would have been, in their minds, mutually beneficial. Now, before we finish our first point, though, let's notice something about Jacob's proposal. Appreciate why he lays it out this way. Jacob explains to Laban the motivation for why he's suggesting we do it this way. Look at verse 33. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So Jacob basically claims here, he says, I'm an honest man. I want to make sure you know I'm an honest man. So later on, if you ever question my honesty, the proof's right here. 
it is an interesting thing for Jacob to stay because, uh, you know, our knowledge that we know of Jacob is he has at least some history of being a dishonest person. Of course, he's dealing with Laban, who also has some history of being a dishonest person. So maybe if you are a dishonest person and you recognize another dishonest person, maybe you put some protections in place here. Well, that brings us into our second point. Consider this second scene in verses 35 through 43. And now, uh, let's see, did I, how did I write this here? I believe I wrote it this way. Yes, uh, the, in, your, in your notes, your outline, I wrote this as the wrestling of Jacob and Laban. Both are seen here trying to outmaneuver each other. They're both trying to sort of get the better hand of the other. Laban takes the first strike. Right away there in verse 35. It seems like no sooner have they sealed their agreement, you know, shook hands on the game plan here, that Laban goes and he tries to cheat Jacob. Basically, Laban, right away after they make this agreement, sort of races back and preemptively separates all the animals out that would have been Jacob's. Spins them off into their own flock that he entrusts to his son's care. And he has the sons and keep the distance away from the flock that Jacob is caring for, so presumably they wouldn't be able to uh, intermingle and, and, and mate with each other. So the properly colored flocks are then under Jacob's care, and the off-colored flocks are under the son's care, the ones that were supposed to be Jacob's, the off-colored ones. Realize what this means. You know, I'm not a geneticist, but I have a little bit of an idea of how this stuff works from science class, right? Um, all things being equal, if you remove all the funny colored ones out of the flock that Jacob's going to care for, that's going to severely reduce the amount that are produced over time from that flock in terms of the off-colored offspring. Uh, again, thinking of the off-colored animals as probably being the recessive genes... Uh, if you remove them from the start, that's going to limit the number. I, again, take eye color among humans, for example. Again, I'm not a geneticist, but this is what I, I seem to understand from, from human eye color. I got blue eyes, right? Um, my understanding, blue eyes is a recessive gene compared to brown eyes. If two blue-eyed people have offspring, they're almost guaranteed to have blue-eyed children. Only blue-eyed children. But if you remove all the blue-eyed people from the mating population, then the chances of having blue-eyed people born to those people that are left, from brown-eyed parents, in other words, is anywhere from 0 to 25% chance. Yeah, so you can look up uh, how that works with the Venn diagram later on. Um, and so this deal here with Laban, he seems that that's probably what he's trying to do here, is he's trying to take away all that off-colored ones so that Hopefully there will be a very limited number of off-colored ones that end up are born to uh, Jacob's flock. In other words, Laban seems to try to be setting things up so he will profit a lot more than, than, than Jacob. And I would argue, as I said, I think we're supposed to realize that the deal from the very get-go really favored Laban, but then he sort of really makes it favor him in his attempt. But Jacob is not easily deterred. 
Remember, this is the wrestling, is, the, is point number two, is the wrestling of these two. Because then we come to verses 37 through 42, Jacob's attempt to grasp out at Laban and take as much as he can. You know, Jacob had made this presumably gracious offer to take the presumably less common off-colored flocks. But what does Jacob do? We see him employing a multi-pronged breeding strategy to both increase the production of the off-colored animals and also to make them the strongest of the herd. Now let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge there's some interesting questions here. We might wonder when we read what he's doing with this breeding strategy and say, what is going on here? It's when you preach a passage, you know, preach a, a, a book series like, say, Genesis, you always think in your mind, okay, one day I'm going to get to that passage. I'm going to have to talk about this passage. What's going on here? What is Jacob doing with these sticks and how that relates to the breeding? And what's the Bible saying about it here? Now, before I really answer that question, let me begin by, by saying the details in the text here. All things considered are rather brief. It's hard when you read the, the language here to understand precisely what Jacob is being described as doing here with these, with these sticks and everything. There's, there's, there's some idea, sort of the big picture given to us. Clearly, Jacob is doing, in his mind at least, certain breeding practices that he hopes will result in more of the flock colorings that he wants. And that the ones that are produced will be the stronger ones. And the ones who are the normal colored ones will be less and weaker. In other words, the ones for Laban will be less and weaker, and the ones for him will be more and stronger. So one of those strategies that Jacob employs is in verses 37 to 39. He takes some poplar, almond, and plane trees. He peels them in a way uh, that they get exposed, the, the white streaks, you know, what's underneath that, that bark. He peels it away, and the white streaks get, get shown out. As soon as you do that, of course, you recognize there's something streaked and spotted about this now, right? It looks like uh, the kind of animals he's hoping to have from the flocks. And he puts these sticks into the water at the spot where the animals would normally mate and where they'd also drink from, these troughs. And then the text describes, sort of, just matter-of-factly, he does this, and next thing you know, uh, there are a bunch of off-colored animals born to the flocks. Then another strategy that Jacob employs here is found in verse 41. He does something to engineer things so that the off-colored ones are the strongest. He, he basically describes them somehow putting these sticks in the water when the stronger ones are mating and not for the weaker ones. And so that the result, when the dust clears again, it sort of just talks matter-of-factly that Jacob's flock grew stronger, Laban's weaker. Again, the question is, what is going on here? And, and there are some various interpretations. And usually I, I can tell you like a, a best guess, and I, I'm sort of uh, even hesitant in even giving my best guess here. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some educated guesses based on the details, uh, and like I said, some of the limited details, as well as some of the limited knowledge we have about breeding techniques back then. There's basically two main interpretations that are opposed, proposed here. 
and I say two main because like each of them have like variations, but sort of two big uh, general approaches. Uh, approach number one uh, is that many think Jacob is employing some erroneous folk science at that time, something along the lines of folk science that thought that embryos could be influenced by what their mating parents saw as they were mating. And I've seen a lot of commentary suggest that, that this was sort of an ancient held belief. I have not found any ancient sources actually claiming that. So it seems very common commentaries to say that, but I've yet been able to follow a footnote that actually showed me someone in antiquity claiming that. And so if that's what's going on here, this might be kind of like how, remember previously, Rachel really wanted those mandrakes, and we thought it's probably because she thought there was some fertility value in them. Whether there was a fertility value or not, that's what she thought. And so that could be Jacob thinking this. That's a very real possibility that Jacob thinks, this is how I can, I can, I can use this to get ahead. Now there's another view. Again, it's just a category of view. That in some way or another these practices did actually aid in achieving his goal. Though not necessarily in the way that the other view suggested, that it was somehow because they saw these things that looked that way. Uh, in other words, there have been uh, other suggestions that these practices might have had some, some practical benefit, like there's been some suggestions that uh, things like poplar in water leaches out certain herbal benefits that produce... Um, increased fertility rates. I actually saw an interesting article that wasn't a Bible article at all that actually argued for uh, that today. Anyways, um, those are all just interesting suggestions. I'm not sure uh, there's enough in the text to be able to say this is what the text is telling you. It is interesting to think there's very two very different categories of views there. On the one hand, this could be Jacob as some foolish practitioner of superstitious husbandry practices. On the other hand, you might see Jacob as this ingenious pioneer of innovating breeding practices. And if either option is the right option, you have some interesting applications that come from it. But see, one time, sometimes what we do is we ask a question of a text, and for whatever reason, we are not able to answer the question and we get hung up on not being able to answer the question instead of saying, what can we see from this text? And there are some very important things in this topic that we can see from the text. And that's, that's what I'm going to emphasize to you today. Two very important things uh, that we can get from this text. Two conclusions. We're, first one, first thing we can get. However effective or not, Jacob's practices were growing, were, however effective or not Jacob's practices here were in terms of growing his flock. We're supposed to realize the reason his flock grew so big and the reason his flock was so strong was God's provision. That is not a question in this text. Chapter 31 has a bunch of verses that explicitly tell us we are to draw that conclusion. So, you know, Thinking about that in terms of the unanswered question, either God did it in spite of his efforts, which would be very fitting to Genesis, right? 
Or God used his efforts in his own way, but God still brought the prosperer. So that is the point number one we can take. However Jacob's practices were or were not actually effective, God is the reason Jacob's flocks ended up so big and strong at the end. Period. Uh, chapter 31, verse 7, for example, says that despite what Laban tried to do to Jacob in the business arrangement, God would not permit Laban to harm him. That's explicitly told us how we're to understand our passage. In fact, as we learn more in the story both today and next week, we see Jacob, or excuse me, Laban keeps changing the wages. He pres- what you get here is that, you know, uh, at one moment, here's the kind of animals that will be your pay. Oh, now they're getting too big, so now we'll change it. Here's the kind of animals that we'll give. And then suddenly those are the ones that become big and strong. And again, the text tells us God's the reason why. The dream that God gave Jacob in verse 10 of chapter 31 also makes that same point. It would have encouraged Jacob. So this is one major conclusion we can clearly take from this text. That... Regardless of Jacob's breeding practices, it was God who gave the bounty. A second big conclusion, though, that we can draw from this, from his breeding practices, from his techniques that Jacob employed, there's a second thing we can glean from this, a conclusion we can draw from it. Here it is. Jacob still struggles with wrestling other humans. Laban, yes. Laban was trying to treat Jacob. But what was Jacob trying to do? He was trying to cheat Laban. That's why Jacob used all these sticks in these breeding practices. He was trying to make his payout way better at the expense of Laban's payout. And last I checked, the Bible teaches that servants are supposed to look to honor their masters. Servants are supposed to work hard to see that their master's uh, estate does well. That's part of love of neighbor. But you see, Jacob, all his life, Jacob has been grasping to try to take from others what belonged to them to make himself better. That's Jacob's life to this point. He was literally wrestling with his brother Esau from the womb. His name Jacob, is, is he's named after this whole idea. He wrestled with Esau like this all growing up. You get the sense that Jacob routinely won against Esau. But now Jacob's found someone who's a little better match in the wrestling. Laban seems to give him a little bit more run for his money. It's not so easy against Laban. So Jacob is still struggling with this idea as well of wrestling. I think that's the second thing we can conclude in what Jacob is doing with all these sticks. Well, let's turn then briefly in our final chapter, or final point, I'm sorry, uh, to consider this final section here. Chapter 31, verses 1 through 16. Uh, There we see Jacob has now at this point lost favor with Laban. He's ultimately then told by God, it's time to leave. Time to return home to the promised land. 
Well, we start there in verses 1 and 2. Jacob hears word that talk is going around about him. Talk's not good. He hears that Laban's sons are saying, Jacob has stolen everything from our father. Translation, the heirs of Laban are saying, they've stolen everything from our father, therefore they've stolen everything from us because we're the heirs. So Jacob learns that this is the talk that's going around. He realizes he's not in favor with this family anymore. You know, six years before, Jacob and Laban agreed to this partnership, and, and Laban was glad to have him around, but not anymore. Now Laban has grown to resent Jacob. In Laban's efforts to cheat and steal from Jacob, God has made it that Laban is the one who lost so much. Laban, in a sense, made Jacob rich by his greed that God uh, punished him for. So in this round between Laban and Jacob, in terms of this round of their wrestling, Jacob came out on top. But again, by the grace of God, and not by actually Jacob's wrestling himself. And that's so clear here. This dream that Jacob has tells us this. Uh, verse 13, God's recorded there telling Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Uh, for Jacob's part, notice he still refers to God as the God of my father, verse 5. I think, again, we're seeing growth in Jacob, but still a bit of a distance yet, that he's still really owning his relationship with the Lord. But God here makes it clear to Jacob how, how God's been protecting him from Laban. So Jacob explains this to his wives. In verse 14, notice how they respond. They have solidarity with, with Jacob over, over Laban, their father. It's clear the wives feel burned by their father. That the father used them, sold them. And the, the daughters recognize it and say, God took everything that our father had and gave it back now to us because now we're connected with you, Jacob. So, so he's taken all that and given it to us. And so you've got to love. They, they, they see no reason to stay. They, instead, what do they, they tell Jacob? Whatever God has said to you, do. Beautiful words. Words we all should, should, should hold on to, right? Whatever God tells you to do, do. Life will go a lot easier. And indeed, Jacob now has instructions from God. God here tells Jacob, leave Laban, leave Padan Aram, return home to the promised land, go back to Canaan. And think about this. Think about just, just think about this idea that God tells him to do this. Six years ago, that's what Jacob had wanted to do. Presumably, he did not receive a word from God six years ago to go home. In fact, remember what the original game plan was? He was going to go get a wife in Potomaran and wait there until, who did he have to hear from? His mom. His mom would eventually reach out to him and say, it's safe to come back. Presumably, he never heard from mom. Presumably, by this time, he still hasn't heard from mom. But after some 14 years at the start of this passage, he hadn't heard. He works another six years, even though he wanted to go back by then. Still doesn't hear from mom. But now, after those 20 years, he does hear from God. God tells him, go back home. 
God tells him not only to go back home, but by referencing the Bethel incident and the vow, implies not only go back home, but go back to Bethel and fulfill the vow you told me there. But what I want us to see is that six years ago, before at the, from the start of our passage to the end of the passage, so that six years back, God had not told Jacob to go, even though he wanted to go. That means God had a purpose for Jacob to spend those six more years there working for Laban. You see the point? God did not tell him six years before to go. God had a purpose for Jacob to spend those six more years Six years it involved a lot of wrestling with Laban. Again, why? We can think, we can ask that question. Why did God have him stay those six more years? We can realize there were several things that worked during those six years. First, God uses those six years to continue to work on Jacob's heart over his inclination to wrestle everyone. Jacob's continued wrestling with others is not just a besetting sin for Jacob, it's really an internal struggle of his heart where he feels the need to lie, steal, and cheat to get ahead instead of looking to walk in faith, to trust the God who has promised him all these things, to trust in the Lord. See, that's what his wrestling with others is contrasted with. Will he rest in the promises of God? instead of trying to lie, cheat, and steal his way to success. By God allowing Jacob to face his match for six more years with Laban, God is teaching Jacob through this that he needs the Lord to prosper him. Right? I mean, six years go by, he doesn't at the end say, yeah, I did such a good job wrestling him. No, he says after six years, if it wasn't for God, I would have not... It would not have turned out well for me. This is the truth that we continue to find in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves. Why we need Jesus to save us. Why we shouldn't try to wrestle the world with our own strength and on our own. We need Jesus to be with us. We need to find our victory at how how He's at work in our life to see what Jesus even considers to be victory. That's the first lesson Jesus, or excuse me, Jacob was essentially learning here. Well, we can see a second lesson as well. God uses these six years, or maybe lessons is not the right word, but a second thing God does during this six-year period. A second reason why God has Jacob stay another six years. Why? Second, God uses those six years to make Jacob a wealthy man. Jacob left the promised land with nothing, and he comes back full. Now, yes, if he had left six years ago, he would have came back with a family, but with nothing else, what we saw at the beginning of our passage. But now he'll leave with so much wealth, and he realizes it's because of God's hand of blessing, not the result of his sinful wrestlings. Now, a third thing that God had him stay for this time was because see how God reminds Jacob about Bethel and what happened there. And what that reminder about Bethel tells Jacob what God promised back at Bethel, now 20 years later, has come to fulfillment. So he's to recognize God's hand during that time. 
And fourth, that sets the stage for him not only to return to Bethel, but so he could worship God at Bethel and give that tithe at Bethel that he had promised, he had vowed to God. And so in all of this, really what God is having Jacob to realize that God was not only his father's God, but Jacob's God. I think we need to realize that a lot of times when we see Jacob saying he's the God of my father, it's not simply that he doesn't want to call God his God, it's that he's not sure God is his God. You know, Jacob's this mentality, everyone's out to get me. I gotta get them. But no, he's realizing God has been on his side this entire time. God has been watching over him and caring for him and blessing him, even when Jacob wasn't quick to recognize it. God had Jacob remain there longer, working for Laban those extra six years to be working these things and teaching these things to, to Jacob. Well, Trinity Presbyterian Church, let us look for the lessons big and small that God is teaching us through our providential circumstances of life. Right? He has us here. For however long He has us here. And He is teaching us things. He's training us in different ways. He's using us in different ways. As you look back on your life, ask those questions. What what has God been teaching me? Recognize as you look back on what's gone on in your life that Jesus has been with you the entire time. As He promised that He will be with us even until the end of the age. Look back and see that even if the world is treated as badly, that it's a sharing in Christ's sufferings, even while we entrust our soul to a faithful God. And finally, as you look to the future, remember there will come a time when Christ finally calls you home. Let us be ready for that call. But until then, look to serve our Lord faithfully. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess how easy it is to try to wrestle the world on our own strength, to rely on our own cunning and hard work, how we can be tempted to get an advantage over others through sinful dealings with them. Lord, help us to repent afresh of those things. Let us indeed work hard. Let us work honestly in this world. Let us look to love our neighbor in our work but ultimately to look to love You in our work and to have a proper fear of the Lord. Thank You for the grace that You've given us as Christians. Would You pray that You would preserve us until that day You call us home. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.